Hello, and welcome to the BU Body Empowerment Unified Podcast, started by high school students and centered in Los Angeles, California, by the BDAC Body Image Eating Disorder Awareness Club. This podcast aims to tell body image stories from those who have overcome eating disorders, aim to spread positivity, kindness, as well as tips and tricks for self-care and raise awareness about self-image and mental health. Hello, we're your hosts, Vienna and Hannah, and today's topic is about the fashion and pop culture industries and how they promote diet culture, which can lead to negative body image as well as bulimia, an eating disorder in which someone has an obsession with losing weight to the point where they're compromising their own health. Instagram to magazines, it's hard to escape the influence the ever-present media has on society and our views of each other. Over the years, research has shown that 9%, or 630 million people in the world, suffer from eating disorders. Rates rising higher with diet facades, social media criticism, and more that continue to pressure adolescents and adults to meet the ideal beauty standards. show to have the highest mortality rate of mental illness, as it can lead to disease and higher chances of limited lifespan. According to the National Eating Disorder Collaboration and Healthline.com, an average model in the U.S. is around 5 or more inches taller than the average female or male, and weighs 23% lighter. In an industry that is looked up to and prominent in the media, the lack of different sizes represented greatly affects the perspective people have on themselves. Diet culture has existed for over a century. It begins when a person dedicates their life to dieting and losing weight, no matter the risks taken to reach an ideal body type, even if it means being close to death. An estimated 93% of women and around 23% of men have experienced body shaming in their lives. Industries and products promoting diet culture and weight loss have collected $46.3 billion a year in America alone. There are many types of eating disorders, including bulimia nervosa, which is an emotional disorder that involves distortion of body image and an obsessive desire to lose weight. It can lead to overeating, depression, self-indulgence, regurgitation, purging, or fasting. Today, we will be interviewing Mrs. Kim Allen. Before we begin the episode, we would like to state a disclaimer that the following interview discusses important eating disorder topics that some listeners may find troubling. Listening discretion is advised. Mrs. Kim Allen is a TCHS CTE business, class fashion marketing, and food business management teacher. She graduated from Temple University and Point Loma Nazarene University and has received four teaching credentials from the state of California. Mrs. Allen grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and started her career life self-employed as a creative writer and working in visual merchandising and public relations. It was until she found her love for teaching did Mrs. Allen move to the San Gabriel Valley in 2000 and had been teaching for the last 15 years. Today, Mrs. Allen continues to teach and write books and essays. In her free time, she pursues dancing, yoga, crafting, sewing, reading, and growing her own YouTube channel. So, 
um, hi, Ms. Allen. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of our BU podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a little nervous, but I'm here. So first, we're going to start the first question. Uh, what sparked your interest in fashion and pursuing a career in it, specifically teaching students? Uh, I think I always had fabric lust. Like, I just love tactile things. You know, our lives are filled with so much more than what we see. But, of course, what we see is such a big deal. So, but I'm kind of obsessive with my hands. Like, I love fabric so much. And I had this next-door neighbor, Mindy, and she was in fashion design school when I was very little. I was like two or three years old. She had always been our neighbor, very close, like family. And she was in fashion design school at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I actually got to see some of her work. And then as I got older, I would watch some more of her work evolve. Her mom still lived there. And it just seemed like a, a realistic path for for someone like me. My dad um, was obsessive with clothing care. So he would always show me like, this is how you hang up your clothing. This is how you do it. And then my mom had the most beautiful wardrobe. Oh, her fabrics were light and airy. And then some had texture or interest. And she just really paid attention to that. She had such, she still has such beautiful clothes and she cares a lot about fabric. So I think that's what it was. Can you tell me a little bit more about being a young girl surrounded by all these positive influences with, you know, fashion? Um, how did that kind of alter your perspective towards fashion? Mm, I just loved it. You know, it was kind of an obsessive thing. My mom kept magazines around fashion magazines all the time so I constantly digested these images and then when so then I worked in fashion for a few years and then when I went to start teaching this position was open where it was it was called uh, creative clothing when I first started and they were doing different clothing projects like some um fabric painting and glitter on clothes and studs and things. But then I've evolved it into a business as well. So I added the business component. So now it's a fashion marketing program. And I think it really connects with industry more and for what students need. You know, you need to go out there and get a job and be useful. So that's why it's happened the way it did. Yeah, for sure. Oh, um, and speaking of industry, um, overall the fashion industry, what do you think it sends to students or the public about body image? Well, I mean, it's radically changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And I try to think of this bigger perspective, right? So it's always changed. You think about Renaissance art and old, old art images even Egyptian art, the bodies were shaped a certain way on the art, right? So it's the same thing. In magazines in the 80s, I looked at Cindy Crawford, um, who they called Curvy, who's not curvy, but Christy Turlington, Naomi Campbell. There were these, like, stick-thin women. When I was growing up, it was only about no hips, straight body, no boobs, skinny, skinny, skinny. And then now the body shape has changed again. This 
has a big booty, right? Everybody likes that now. Everybody wants to build, get gains on their butt, right? So it just continues to change. It's really evolved. You know, in China, women bound their feet. So I don't necessarily look to that as like my ideal anymore. I think that's how I've changed is, you know, today, like you have so many examples of body shapes that you can look at. Some brands put out only skinny people still. And you don't have to, some Instagrammers only put out skinny people. But now at least there's like this wide choice, right? Yeah, so I, I appreciate the broadening of this um, standard is much bigger, different now. And how do you um, empower your students to kind of do what you did and express themselves despite the body standards in the media? Mm, well, it's been a challenge in the classroom. You know, I have dress dummies and I can only have so many because of space. So in the beginning, when I first bought them, I only had one or two. Now I have six. So there's a little bit in the classroom of, but I'd say the dummies are still pretty uh, tight, right? Size-wise. We do have a skill where we measure our bodies. So uh, they have to learn to measure. So I've given them just a freedom to that they can handle it. I think I've just given a sensitivity to if you're sensitive about this, you can go in the other room and measure yourself or you can measure yourself at home. You never have to share those numbers with me or anybody. We just need them to be able to make your clothing so we know which one to pick, which size on the pattern to pick. Um, I think just when I come with respect and consideration to whatever a student's body type might be, you know, some people are really thin and don't like it, you know, so it doesn't even matter what their body shape is. I just have to be respectful and considerate to privacy, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You know, I don't, and just being peaceful, like we're just making clothes. We're just having fun. And Hey, if you don't want to make clothes for your body, we'll make you a purse. We'll make you a stuffed animal. You know, you can like have that flexibility in my class. I think because I went through such a hard time with my body, that's one thing I share with them. I think when, um, Megan Trainer came out with that song, right? All about that base that year was the shift from skinny, skinny, skinny. Everything was skinny. All of a sudden people were awake, you know, and people started saying J-Lo had a butt. And it was like, first of all, I don't, I, that's a small butt. Okay. If you see people in real life, she might have a nice butt, but there are way bigger butts out there. And so people started talking about this as a positive. And then of course, Kim K, right. And her whole family, curvy, curvy, So then there was this huge shift and all these body types were talked about as not negative anymore. And I, my students get that more than anything I could bring to them. They really started coming in and not feeling bad about themselves. Like girls of all sizes were wearing crop top shirts. Boys were wearing crop top shirts. You know, it was just, they had that, um, they were, they were bringing it into the classroom more, which was cool to see. The representation now throughout the generations, we get to see different kind of bodies. Um, 
and just feel proud to be in our own. Like you said before, people were always thought to be skinny. Skinny was the beauty standard, really small. Like you said, um, the foot, uh, feet binding, small feet, um, small waist. But now, yeah, like you said, today people are more um, proud of their curve, you know. And even non-curves, like, you know, mm-hmm. there's only so much you can do to manipulate your body, you know. So... I think we're finding this, well, I can say I'm finding this like appreciation for what I have instead of what I don't have. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, social medias and um, platforms, people use their voices to express that, you know, wearing clothes, um, you don't have to be a certain size to wear a specific um, clothes, clothing style or genre. Um like you said, uh, guys now wearing crop tops or um, girls can feel comfortable. Um, big girls can feel comfortable wearing crop tops and not have to feel like they're always judged because of it. It's mm. not just for um, thin people. Yeah, and they look amazing, mm-hmm. and people are attracted to them. So, and it's always been that way. It was, you know. It was a lie before that it only represented one facet of how we looked, you know, for guys that like girls or whatever, for heterosexuals, it was like guys like girls, period. You know, they like all kinds of shapes and sizes. And yeah, so it's nice to see more truthful. It's more truthful. And you mentioned that it's become more truthful, that you've seen it more truthful in the media. Um. So growing up, um, how did you struggle with body dysmorphia with the media not being as truthful as it is today? Mm. Well, uh, it definitely has been a process. I can tell you one thing I've really learned is that it doesn't matter what the media says or what my parents said or messages that I received. My body image stuff and eating disorder stuff was really more about emotional and mental needs that I had that weren't being met. You know, it really was an inside job. It doesn't matter what magazines I read. I'll think that my body is wrong because that's the way eating disorders and body image dysmorphia work. It's not, it's just, you know, that's how, that's how it works. So, um, but I can tell you early on, I just felt uncomfortable in my body. You know, I remember not wanting to dress for PE in elementary school. Very, very young. I felt so um, stressed and pained and to the point where my PE teacher had to call my parents, you know, is really an issue. And then as a teenager, oh boy, did it blow up, you know, because everybody else was talking about dieting. There was this popular popcorn diet. There was a magazine called Diets and there was like just filled with diets. Um, There was a cabbage soup diet. And so dieting talk was just commonplace among the women in my family constantly in school with my friends and so I really clicked with the dieting cycling kind of thing because I could do it for a little while but then I would mess up and I would want to be perfect therefore I failed you know and wasn't perfect so that kind of cycle of perfectionism really clicked for me 
uh, my eyes were always broken. I always saw myself as fat, even when I was not, like, factually not fat. And then one one um, summer, I got mono. The summer before I started high school, I, I got mono, and I dropped a lot of weight. It was it was like two weeks, and I dropped a lot of weight. And then after that, it was just on because I saw how skinny I could be, and I and that was that was the beginning of my quest to get back to that skinny um, for the next twelve years, probably. Yeah, it's really hard. I can't imagine. So um, how were you able to kind of pull yourself out of that slump or what encouraged you to um, stop to always trying to be skinnier? Well, I still work on it. <laughs> I still work on it. You know, like I haven't, I was, I was doing, I was bulimic and total body dysmorphia for that whole time for that long time and it was about 27 I had started therapy a few times right for this specific thing I went to groups but then when I was 27 I met a therapist who specialized in this and she was completely hands off in trying to fix me in the sense that she would tell me somebody else cannot cause it or cure it or control it Right. Somebody else cannot do those things in me. And she kind of gave me tools that were up to me to practice and try out. It took me a year before I stopped throwing up. It took me a year of going to her, listening to her. I don't even know that I wanted to stop for a while. I didn't even ask like how do I stop or anything like that I just she gave me tools for my emotions she gave me tools for relationships not just boyfriend girlfriend stuff she gave me tools for all kinds all of my relationships I started meditating I also I went to 12-step meetings in which are everything there's special meetings for anorexics, bulimics. There's special meetings for people who want to lose over 100 pounds. There's 12-step meetings for body image. There's 12-step meetings for um, all those things. So talking to others about how it happened, how it stopped, and then also trying to help others. Like I think the service component to help others over and over in my life on a daily basis changed me. Uh, like I really am getting teary-eyed when I think about the selfish person I used to be. Selfish, fearful, dishonest. And I really, really attribute so much of changing who I am to someone that I actually want to be. I attribute so much of that change to trying to be of service to other people every day. And it landed me in a job where I help 170 people every day to give them tools for their lives to grow. It's uh, something I still work on, but I ha I do have a recovery. Like I have an enormous amount of recovery. I don't think anybody ever gets perfect recovery, you know, but I have a big amount 
you know what else has been helpful is like being in my body where I have to um, do movement. Whenever I would, I just started teaching yoga like five, six years ago. And in all my classes, we face away from the mirror. I don't look in the mirror at all. And I most of the time, even before that, when I would practice with others, I avoid looking in the mirror to do the movement because then I really get to be in my body and get those, again, those like tactile or, you know, the somatic experiences that are going on in my body rather than focusing on what I look like. I think those things, that's what's helped me. I mean, there's a lot of books out there that people can read, too. They're not always helpful. Sometimes they just give us, like, more ideas for how we can torture ourselves, though. Right? Mm-hmm. For listeners right now, what message would you give them about maybe some affirmations that you tell yourself? Something to inspire you or to inspire people you tell in your cl- in classes? Okay, uh, so your question, yeah, about affirmations um, and what I would tell people is, well, one, affirmations don't work for me. I don't, I don't know who came up with the idea that you can say something over and over and it becomes true. Even stuff about my body, it just didn't work for me. I tried. Um, I actually had to really focus more on the other parts of my life like my goals, my dreams. I made a vision board this year. You know, I make one like I've made vision boards and like collages for 20, 30 years now, right? Write goals constantly. I use my little planner. This is the very first time that my vision board did not include getting skinny. It just happened. It it, it was removed from my, from my vision. I had focused, that was like one of my life goals for so long. Can you imagine getting to be 80 years old and you look back on your life and one of your life goals is to be skinny? What a disappointment, right? What a sad, sad life I thought that would be. So, you know, like I said, it's been since I was, it's been 21 years that I've been in recovery from all this and working on it means like one day at a time I have to put in some effort into meditation, journaling, reaching out to people, um, some therapy, not all those years include therapy, and then service, like I said, really a lot of service, reading. There's an amazing book called Gaining by Amy Liu, and she talks about, she wrote a book about women with eating disorders in college. 20 years ago, beautiful, prolific book. Everybody who has eating disorders gets obsessive and reads these, right, a lot. So her book was widespread. Now she wrote a new book about some of those women 20 years later and the way they live their lives. And it was sad. Some of it was sad. Some of it was like, oh, they are still doing so many of these life limiting practices like you know anorexia is so much about feeling small invisible um control you know so even if i don't do the food practices of bulimia where am i 
not willing to accept consequences? Where am I not chasing my dreams? Where am I in relationships where I keep my mouth shut too much or say too much, right? So it's like so much more than the food and the photographs I look at. It's in my head, in my heart, and like little bit through those practices, it happens. It happens. I lived such a lame existence when I was doing those things. And um, today I don't have to anymore. Look, it could come back. And some days when I'm stressed, that's what comes back. And I start thinking about, oh, what diet should I try? Or keto comes out and I'm like, oh, I should try that. Or uh, I look at workouts and I start making up like all these rules or plans. I'm going to do Chloe Ting workout, you know, for 90 days and I'm going to have this. And And it's like, no, just like one day at a time, just do my practices, staying grounded. Spiritual practice helps me enormously. I think basically I was comfortable in the uncomfortable. You know, I had resigned to the fact that my life would always include some bulimic tendencies. I just thought this is the way it's going to be for me. That's it. I'm never going to be happy in my size. Find to living a life of misery in that in that way, and a lot of other ways is spread. Uncomfortable. I was comfortable in the uncomfortable. I don't have that. It got lifted. I have this recovery that's been gifted to me, gifted through a lot of help from other people and reaching out and accepting that help and taking action like service and like all the other things I mentioned. I feel so thankful that I can share this publicly and let people know that you don't really have to keep living like that. Like there is definitely a better way, you know, and we all have so much bigger goals today that we can that we can focus on. There's just too much work in the world to do, right? For us to focus on this. When I first started therapy, there was this amazing therapist that I saw and I don't even know where she is now. I would love to find her. Her name was Dina Rose. And she told me, I did not have any children at the time, but she said, treat yourself like you would if you had, if you were your two year old daughter. And I didn't have a daughter at the time, so I didn't know what it really meant. But I started picturing myself at two, or I would see other two-year-olds. So I knew some reference. And she'd say, everything that you do, do it as if you were that two-year-old child. And when you respond to yourself or you make decisions, think of that person. She said, even when you're cutting an apple, you take the knife and you just, you know, just slam it down and say here. and Or do you cut it softly and do you arrange it nicely on the plate for yourself? Little things like that. So I think she was one of the greatest gifts um, for me in my whole life, right? My whole life. So thank you. episode was brought to you by the BDAC Club of TCHS and was produced and edited by Emily Kwok. We'd like to thank our guest speaker, Miss Allen, and our two interviewers, Vienna Lopez and Hannah Kwok. We hope you enjoyed this special episode and can't wait for you to listen to more. Don't forget to follow us at TCHS BDAC. 
That's B-I-E-D-A-C on Instagram, where you can view our club activities, posts, and information. If you would like to be featured in a future episode, you can contact us at bdatclub at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to be you.